News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time for our daily talk about something cool, something new, something that we are going to learn about. It's one of my favorite times of the day, actually. So today it's all about the universe and reality. New research is giving us updated ideas about the universe and how it is evolving and the fact that it is evolving and changing. And if it's growing, then is it learning too? And what does all of that mean? Well, Dr. Bobby Azarian is a cognitive neuroscientist and author of The Romance of Reality and joins us to talk about this. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. What is The Romance of Reality? So it's a book about how the universe is organizing itself. And basically that means, uh, so we understand the universe as being the system made of these particles that we call atoms. Uh, The idea of the book is that Uh, nature's fundamental components, atoms come together to make larger structures like molecules, which come together to make uh, more complex structures like uh, cells and organisms, and that the evolutionary process that we're so used to learning about that describes biological evolution uh, might apply to the universe as an entire system, and that life may be a part of that universe evolving becoming more complex and in a sense learning. Okay. So what does all that mean if that's the case? So, uh, the implications of this, you know, are, are big and weird and mysterious. So it seems like, uh, the universe doesn't, it's not just this random arbitrary system the way we thought it was, it might be something like a computational system. So maybe the universe is a a giant computer and it has this structure that's very much like a biological organism or maybe even a brain because biological systems themselves are information processing systems. So they're very much like a computer. So whether you say the the universe is like a computer or an organism doesn't really matter. Uh, The point is that it's this system that's generating complexity and novelty and that life and even consciousness is a product of that. And that's a lot different than how we used to think of the universe as sort of this big dead thing. In this picture, life would be part of the universe's um, computation that's generating complexity. So it kind of puts life center stage and says, maybe it's not accidental in the way we thought it was. Um, Maybe it's a part of the growing organization of the universe itself. Okay, so it's not just this developing on planet Earth. This is part of a larger operation, essentially. Uh, yeah, the idea is that maybe life is more prevalent than we thought. And in on planets uh, with the right conditions for life, it arises um, pretty quickly. So, for example, Carl Sagan pointed out that um, life must be a probable affair because as soon as the conditions were right on Earth, up it popped. Um, so the Earth was just, um, so basically the planet is about 4.5 billion years old and life itself is about 4 billion years old. So if life is more likely to emerge than we thought, um, that increases the odds for alien life being out there. And if the argument in the book is right, and evolution produces this trend towards intelligence, which is you know, not exactly what we thought before. We thought it had no direction, but it seems like it does produce higher complexity and higher intelligence. Um, then it seems like uh, there could be 
potentially intelligent alien life out there as well, if this is a general trend of the universe. Okay, so why do we think that? Then what what do we see or what do you see out there that shows that the universe is learning and evolving? So basically, um, this was a new understanding of the origin of life based on kind of understanding it from a thermodynamics perspective. And thermodynamics um, is the study of the flow of energy and how systems use energy to maintain their order in this context. Um, But we see that for organisms um, to stay alive, they have to constantly be consuming energy. So for example, we have to um, eat food or we die. Plants have to extract sunlight. Um, And that uh, problem of extracting energy from the environment requires life to uh, create a model of the world around it. So life is always creating this sort of map or mental model of reality. And that's what we call the mind. And um, this process, this learning process um, wouldn't be just occurring in humans. This would be uh, basically a multi-level process where humans are forming something like a global brain on the earth. So humans are connected in a way that's very similar to neurons exchanging signals in the brain um, through the internet. And we're exchanging signals um, through our uh, devices in a very similar way. So there seems to be um, a sort of similar structure to the biosphere as a whole um, as uh, living organisms. And so the idea is that the biosphere is this kind of growing island of information in an inanimate world, and that information is spreading. and It's true we don't see life around us in our solar system elsewhere because those planets don't have conditions that are friendly for life. But we think that if it arose here so easily and so quickly that in habitable zones, in other galaxies, for example, um, there might be planets that uh, are teeming with life. And um, so that's called the Fermi paradox. Like, why haven't we encountered them yet? Yeah. And the idea is that they're probably just too far. And that moment could be coming soon. Some people think that moment's already here, but um, (laughs) I don't, you know, I I don't have any strong thoughts about, you know, we see these alien videos being released or UFO videos. So many of Um, them now though, right now, Dr. Azarian. (laughs) Yeah. And it's just hard to figure out what's going on because there's so many weird things about it. Why suddenly is the government like kind of introducing uncertainty, like maybe there are UFOs with potentially aliens here. So um, it's a little strange and it has to make you wonder like what changed. And so I'm a bit skeptical of that, but I do think this new story that's emerging um, does increase the statistical likelihood that there's intelligent life out there. And a lot of people are hopeful that in our lifetimes, uh, we will discover uh, traces of that. And you know what? We'll be talking about it on the show when we do. Uh, Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. I know there's a lot of stories out there right now about artificial intelligence and everything that's going on with it. But this one today, this is something different. And of course, our contributor, Scott Shantz, is the one who tracked it down. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. How are you? Happy Friday. Oh, yes. Happy Friday. I'm fascinated by this story. Yeah, me too. Uh, This is the story of the first ever AI 
church service. So a man in Austria at a convention that happened in Germany put this whole thing together and he used AI to create the entire service, including the music. This is all church music that like happened throughout the service that was created by AI. He also, uh, the, the AI prayed during the service. It gave the blessing. And then, of course, it also um, preached a sermon. And I asked him all about that. Yeah. I- I'm just sorry. I'm so confused because this seems antithetical to what going to church should be all about. It's about connection. It's about people. It's about community. Yeah. And you are absolutely right. So one of the questions that I asked him, and you'll hear this, of course, is like, what do you do with that? You know, uh, if if a comp- if God can be replaced by a computer, what's the point in having, yeah. having a God? Uh, and so we'll get into all of that. But the first thing I asked him is like, how, like, how do you even, because to me, a computer has to be able to, and when I say a computer, obviously I mean like an AI program, it has to be able to understand the thing that you're talking about. So how do you compl- explain to an AI program what go- a god or a, you know, a spiritual being is actually like? So I started by asking him, you know, like how did, how did this process start? How do you actually even create a service, a full church service using AI. Uh, his name is Jonas Zimmerlein. He's a theolo- theologian and philosopher at the University of Austria. And uh, here's what he had to say. So it started with GPT. GPT lays the groundwork for the whole process um, and gives out the text. So you tell them like what their objective is. For example, what is the context? You say, Hey, ChatGPT, you are a AI preacher at this um, church service. Um, now lay the groundwork, or organize the, um, or give like an like a roadmap how you would do it. And then you ask them, okay, now now choose a um, psalm, for example, or a text to base your sermon on. And then they will choose um, according to the um, to the concept it laid out before and like step by step you get a text or like the textual groundworks for uh, the entire church service um, roughly I would say like 98% of what was seen and the creative and potential came through algorithms and AI that's really incredible. How how do you think that that service compared to a regular church service? Do you think it was better? Do you think it was maybe not as good? Maybe lacking in in some parts, or was it was it just as good? Um, it depends. I would say it's not really comparable uh, quality wise. Um, we are just not there yet. Technically like technically, but I would be optimistic that the technical side will be solved in like a year or something. But on a more profound and existential level, I don't think AI will ever adequately replace humans. And it would be weird to think so. And I would, I would like challenge anyone who would 
think that's a good idea, to be honest. This is one of the things that's so interesting about what you've done here. Um, I think that many of us are looking at AI and GPT as something that will take the place of um, jobs like data entry and jobs that are fairly, you know, mm. um, um, cut and dried, black and white type of jobs. Whereas uh, preaching sure. a sermon, it's it almost seems like an art form and it requires, in my experience, requires like a, a deeper connection and emotion and a spiritual component. Um, so it's interesting to hear how you've done this. So I want to understand, like the purpose, were you trying to, and I agree with you that I'm not sure that it will ever, GPT will ever be able to replace that. Were you trying to dispel that or were you trying to find a way to um, speed up the the sermon prep process? What was your intention or what were you trying to prove in, in doing this? I was curious, and that was the aim of it, like how would people react to this kind of experiment? Would they be able to have as you said like spiritual experience when they um pray the our father together with a an ai, an AI as the lead um like prayer conductor um that was kind of the question like would people feel anything what would they feel and if they felt disgust or uncomfortable i would be I was curious, like, what is it that makes us uncomfortable? What are these nuances that mm -hmm. probably AI won't be able to replace? I think we can learn a lot about human sermons actually by replacing it with AI and see what's lacking here. What has the response been from people who have taken part or took part in the service? What was their reaction? There was different reactions. For many, it was a relief because they realize that we are far from being replaceable as pastors. And for others, it was uh, it was just laughter. There was a lot of laughter, actually, like people were laughing a lot. I don't know, it, it felt a little like people were also uncomfortable in their laughter mm -hmm. because they realized that it's not that far off, actually. That's uh, Jonas Zimmerlein. He's a theologian and philosopher at the University of Austria talking about an AI church service. And he mentions that people were laughing during it. I feel like I would be laughing, like the nervous, awkward laughter yes. of like the computer. God is the computer. My God is the I computer. I'm scared. I don't know about this guy's decision to do all this, Scott. That this, this clearly needs a deeper conversation. <laughs> Thank you for that. My pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, we're checking back in with our Scott Shantz this morning. I'm still thinking about your previous topic, Scott, which was about religion and AI. And I, I still think that the person that you talked to probably didn't tackle that the right way. Yeah, and I mean, it's an interesting conversation. Um, you know, I'm very into conversations about philosophy and theology and, and uh, existentialism and all that type of stuff. I think he was trying to do uh, a really interesting thing um, in showing that uh, uh, AI can do this, but it doesn't do as good a job as a, as a human does. But it definitely didn't land with his no, audience. It didn't. <laughs> well, good luck to him. Now, we're also talking about grocery stores this morning. And of course, I love a good grocery store. I'm sure. a bit of a grocery store aficionado. Why are we talking about this? Well, yeah. So Costco has been doing this for years and nobody seemed to have a problem with it. But now other grocery stores across the country, and not just grocery stores, a lot of the retail sector has apparently 
apparently starting to do this too. And uh, people are kind of getting up in arms with it. And we're talking about uh, receipt checking, where they stand at the door and ask to check your receipt or maybe look in your bag before you exit the store, specifically Loblaws grocery stores. But they're one of the big names. Okay, but what's what's the problem? Like you say, like if you go to Costco, you know they're going to check your receipt at the door. Yeah, for sure. And I don't know if it's because Costco has been doing it for so long, we kind of just expect it there. But a lot of the people who have reported going out of Loblaws and having their receipts checked say that, hey, this what's the deal? This makes us feel like a criminal. And I think that maybe it has something to do with, and some people have also vocalized this, it has something to do with the fact that uh, Loblaws has been in the spotlight for a lot of price increases and uh, CEO bonuses. I don't know if we view Loblaws in the same light that we view Costco. Like Costco is kind of the people's champ, you know? Everybody who shops there loves it. Everyone who works there says great things about it. You shop there because you know there are deals and Loblaws has been raising prices and everybody knows that. They can feel that. So now they think, here's this company that has been raising prices on me in the last couple of years is still giving their executives a ton of money, and now they want to check my receipts? Yes. Yeah, it kind of feels like that. So there's these signs when you leave that they say, hey, just be aware, we are checking certain bags for... Oh, certain bags. That's so you right. check them all or don't check any right. of them? They, they say that they might for, they're calling it inventory accuracy, Right, that we want to make sure that we have our inventory oh numbers boy. right. Right, it's it's this is very that the new subtle. Word for shoplifting is that I, the? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like they basically don't want to say we're worried that people are shoplifting. And the other side of this too is, you know, uh, they've gone to many, many, many self checkouts. You know, there's a lot more self checkouts. They've eliminated positions. So to- wait a minute, wait a minute. So they've eliminated positions at the checkout, which I know everybody's been doing this. Sure, but they're going to find people to stand at the door and check your bag. Ex- then. This is the point, and this is the point. And obviously, maybe it's not obvious, but uh, self checkout is one of the places that they find that people shoplift the most. Or but people they're making us do it. Thank you, thank you. And all of this, I think, Simi ties into why we don't feel this way about Costco, and this is a dumb idea that they're doing this. You know, like you. I think that. I don't understand how brands don't get the idea that if you treat us right, we'll treat you right, right? Loyal Costco shopper. Costco is good to us. We're good to Costco, right? I've had people, here's the thing about Costco and when they check receipts at the door. It's not just because they think you took something. They're also checking, and I've talked to them about this, to see that they didn't make a mistake. Because twice over the years, they have said to me, oh, look at, we charged you for something that you don't have here in your cart and I've gotten some money back. So it, there's a lot of reasons why they do that. But this, this when you're already being nickel and dimed, I don't like this. Right. Like Costco has built this fantastic reputation over years, you know, and people love it. And I, because they're, because companies like Loblaws and others are valuing their bottom line so much, they're uh, ruining relationships with the people that pay their bills, you and me. This is Mornings with Simi. We have found Reggie now, though, so we are going to find out what's been going on in the U.S. this week. Hi, Reggie. Hello. Okay, so let's start with this, because we talked to you earlier in the week with the Donald Trump indictment, and he went straight into fundraising at that point, didn't he? He did. Uh, I mean, literally straight into fundraising. Within a couple of hours, uh, held a big fundraiser at his golf course in New Jersey, And within about a six hour time frame from the moment that he was arraigned until the moment that he started speaking at this event, uh, his campaign says that it pulled in 
$2 million. And this is big because usually Donald Trump and the campaign pulls in money from kind of the grassroots part uh, of the movement, the one, the two, the five, the $10 donations. The fact that he can roll in $2 million in just a couple of hours shows that despite all of the kind of um, you know, legal baggage that is dragging behind him, he still has wealthy donors with deep pockets in his corner. And that is important for him as he really tries to maintain this lead in the Republican race. Right. And he still has that lead, right? Like I would say it's, he's gotten a lot of attention this week. Sure. He has the lead financially and he has the lead in the polls. I mean, overall, beyond that $2 million, it's a total of $7 million he's raised since he was indicted, a total of, I believe, it's $17 million uh, on both of the indictments. So that is a huge war chest for him to have. And in the polls, yeah, his numbers are still big. And especially when you look at it in terms of the number two in the race, which is Ron DeSantis, he's polling in and around 23%. Donald Trump is polling in and around 53, 54%. These are big deficits that the people around him are going to try to, you know, catch up to. But Trump shows no sign of leaving this race, even with all of the crises that are building up around him. Okay. And and even though he's got all that money, he's not the person who has the most money at this point in the race, is he? Uh, he doesn't have the most money, but at the end of the day, he has the people with the deepest pockets that are surrounding him. And he is the one who has had the early lead when it comes to having um, uh, political action groups and committees start to spend uh, on TV and on radio and papers. And that's where a lot of this money is going to. And he's the one with a leg up right now. I mean, even here in D.C., which is very non-Trump country, there are a lot of Trump commercials that are playing. They're playing up against, you know, the DeSantis commercials. But these are two men who are arguably spending the most money to go after each other. Does that provide an avenue for someone else to sneak up? Possibly. You know, we're 500 plus days away. But money is going to speak for everybody, uh, and that's why they're all after it right now. Okay, so let's talk about something other than politics, because I know we do that all the time, and there's so many other stories out of the U.S. this week, Reggie. For instance, what is up with this Harvard morgue story? What is this? Okay, so this is, uh, this is going to be difficult to talk about at 7 o'clock in the morning, because it is a little bit gross. But ultimately here, uh, there are a number of people who are facing indictments for taking bodies that were donated uh, to Harvard Medical School for use in education or for research purposes. And these body parts were being essentially harvested and then sold to other people. Some of them, uh, there's, a, there's a person in Massachusetts who has a store that sells things that will, quote unquote, you know, shock you. And, you know, some of it is bone art. Uh, but people were selling these body parts and buying them for Two, three, four thousand, ten thousand dollars using you know PayPal accounts. It's Harvard. Uh, to, to, yeah, How could they let this happen? I mean, and look, some of this, some of I mean, this I said it's gross. Some of it is like skin was being sold so that it could be you know put through a tannery and then turned into a leather type product for people to buy. Obviously, there are going to be huge investigations and questions into uh, the people who are running the morgues at the school. Uh, to figure out how this happened. The indictments are going to be big because this gets into human trafficking, despite yeah. the fact that these are corpses. Uh, but, I mean, it's it's disgusting. Uh, and there are people who are in, incredibly critical of the people who did this because it is such a desecration uh, of the bodies, which which obviously in itself is a, is a crime. You know, what really breaks my heart about that is that when people are donating their body, they're, do- you know, Obviously, you do that with a lot of thought and you're thinking, I want to do good with this. I want to make sure that my you know, death 
uh, has a purpose. Therefore, I'm going to donate it to Harvard Medical School because they're probably thinking, what better medical school is there? Yeah. And look, when you do that, oftentimes the part of you is used and then the remains of your body are either cremated and sent back to the family or they're buried into a cemetery. Uh, You know, families aren't sure if they're ever going to get uh, their family members back. And in some cases, there was a a mother and father who died and the daughter donated. uh, And she's now asking for the entire body of the mother back because she's just so disgusted by this. I mean, this is a really hard story. It's a gross story. But I mean, it really makes you question what's going to happen to you you know, in the moments after. And how can you tell? How can you guarantee that, you know, what what you asked for is actually going to happen? Like, that story is shocking. Um, Oh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about quickly. I was reading about this yesterday, this uh, Supreme Court of the United States decision on Indigenous children and removal for adoption. Yeah, so essentially what it does is it holds up... an act that's been in place uh, for the last several decades. Again, this is a Supreme Court that is getting cases thrown at it with decades of precedent. Uh, and essentially what the, what the decision does is it allows for children from within Indigenous communities to be adopted to families within Indigenous communities and not outside uh, of the reservation. And this essentially came because there were a couple of white families that wanted to adopt Indigenous family, uh, Indigenous children, uh, and and tribal leaders really pushed back to say, "Look, we don't want this. We we need to, you know, get out of the habit of having, uh, you know, white people take Indigenous children away from their families." You know, obviously something that Canada is reckoning with huge from what happened in decades past. And the seven two decision says, "Look, these children can stay." with uh, Indigenous families. They can stay on their reservations because ultimately uh, the federal government is here to work uh, and make policies that work alongside tribes around the United States. There's a real chance that this could come back to the court because some of the conservative justices see this as potentially you know, being race-based and not politics-based. But for the moment, tribal leaders and the administration say this is a win because it keeps Indigenous children with Indigenous families. Right, but some of those Conservative justices also agreed with this decision, right? Like, didn't Amy Coney Barrett actually write the majority on this? She wrote the majority on this and, and says that this is a good thing. Seven to two. I mean, this is a yeah, big, this is a big win for, for, um, for the progressive part of the country. Justice Alito, Justice Thomas obviously dissented. But look, Justice Kavanaugh, who also agreed with this, says that the law could be looked at in the future because he still doesn't believe that this uh, ultimately ends a question of, is this a race-based decision? Interesting. All right, Reggie, thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. School liaison officers are coming back to Vancouver schools, but not everyone is happy about that. Over the last few years, this program has been debated, it has been discussed, and that's what some Vancouver Police Board members thought was going to happen at a meeting this week. Instead, they found out the decision was already made and there would be no more discussion. As a result, one member of the board, Rachel Roy, quit and she joins us now to talk about that. Thank you so much for being here. No problem. Thank you for having me. Good morning. What happened this week? So this week we had a board meeting, a public board meeting at which we were supposed to discuss and as a board approve the uh, police department's new reimagined um, school liaison officer programs. The African Descent Advisory Committee, uh, this is a department committee that came out of um, a motion the board passed two years ago to address structural racism in policing. 
Uh, they were invited to come to that meeting and to speak, and they were also told there was going to be a vote. At the beginning of the meeting, the vice chair indicated that she made an error and uh, that this had already been approved back in November. This is patently false. At the November 24th board meeting, uh, where the board um, did its usual annual uh, job of passing um, the budget, the, the SLO program hadn't even been envisioned. In fact, the school board had not even voted yet to bring the SLO program back in. So what happened is that instead of having um, that discussion Instead of digging into the details and having that debate, the debate was stifled. Um, the African Descent Advisory Committee was given five minutes to speak. I made a motion to give them 20 minutes to speak. Not a single other board member would second that motion. Um, there was a real stifling of debate. There was a silencing of Black voices. And it was incredibly disappointing and shocking to me that that occurred. Now, Rachel, how does that make you feel about the work that you've been you've been on the board for what three three plus years? How does that make you feel about the work that you did on the board? I feel really disappointed. I agreed to join the board in 2020, and as you'll recall, um, that was a time where um, there was a lot going on and a lot in the media about the culture of policing. Um, this is when, um, you know, the tragic murder of George, George Floyd occurred. North American policing institutions were really grappling with structural racism, especially towards black people. And um, in June of, of 2021, um, a little over a year into my tenure, we really made um, a historic move to, to pass unanimously a motion about structural racism in policing. And the African Descent Advisory Committee came out of that. And um, the department recruited and appointed these community leaders with deep expertise, lived experience and guidance to share with us, including former police officers. So this group was gracious and generous enough to share their knowledge and guidance with us. And this school liaison officer program vote was the first test for us as a board of whether that commitment we've made back in June 2021 would be empty words. Right. Let let me ask you, though, do you feel like was there a way to do this better? Like the program's coming back. But if if there were more participation, if you were still there, is there not a way to say, hey, here's some things that we're concerned about. We want to make sure the program does X, Y, Z. So the difficulty is that is what we were supposed to be doing. But instead of allowing that process to unroll, um, the vice chair simply said, no, there isn't going to be a vote. It's it's a serious govern- governance issue. It's a dereliction of our duties as police board members. And I truly believe that I could make positive change from within the system. But when, you know, you have a system where the board's own governance processes are not going to be permitted to go through, 
it's it's really difficult to see how that can move forward. And I'm disappointed because what happened yesterday is going to reflect badly on the department, but it's not a failing of the department. It is a failing of the board and the governance structure. And we didn't get to have the discussion about further consultation or about... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just say I think you're you're clearly busy there. You've got you've got someone you gotta take care of, but we appreciate that conversation, Rachel. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks. This is Mornings with Simi. Vancouver School Board is really not planning in tandem with any other agency. And while other agencies plan for vast growth, the VSB is planning for decline. And based on those projections, which I think most people find very dubious is actually making short-term plans to sell off schools. That is Michael Hooper, UBC professor, talking about the Vancouver School Board's projections. It comes down to this. Will there be more kids in Vancouver schools 10 years from now or fewer? And as you just heard, it does depend on who you ask. Ask statisticians, Ministry of Education, academics, as we heard. They'll tell you that there will be more. Ask the Vancouver School Board, though, and they'll say something different. So yesterday we did speak with UBC Professor Michael Hooper about those numbers and the confusion over where they're coming from. So should the Vancouver School Board actually be thinking about closing schools and selling land, as we've been hearing in the news, or should they be rethinking their numbers? So we reached out to get more information about this, and joining us now is Pretty Friedkot, who's the vice chair of the Vancouver School Board. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. How do you respond to the criticism over the board's long-term planning numbers? The long-term planning numbers, um, it's actually very accurate when it comes to VSB enrollment. We, we look at, it's not really long-term. We actually do it on, on a basis of 10 to 15 years approach, and we plan on a localized approach. So uh, we, we do see there's a lot of spaces in the city that has a decline in enro- enrollment. And we have growth in certain areas like Olympic Village. But overall, as a VSB, we see the whole enrollment is declining. Um, but, but yet the city is predicting so much. We keep hearing about more people coming to Vancouver, more people coming to Vancouver. How do we think they're going to show up here and not have children? Yeah, the changes is happening in Vancouver. We have seen a lot of population in Vancouver over the years, but that does not increase uh, and does not translate into school-age students. Uh, the enrollment projection that our staff use is actually more consistent and accurate than the forecast used by other resources. Uh, we use um, forecasting for youth population. The district, um, uh, we use BC Stats, um, BC Stats data, which is a- actually updated annually. Um, to track the birth birth rate of the children in the school. Um, that's how we we see the how many students will attend the school. We also see uh, Canada Revenue Agency child care benefit data to estimate youth population by age and to see how many people they've been in and out of the city. So the stats that we use are updated on an annual basis, and it's more accurate than um, other resources. But you're saying your so your numbers are more accurate than everybody else's numbers? Well, if you look at the past as well, um, the VSB, when, um, you know, the enrollment, our enrollment, what VSB has predicted is actually closer to what um, we have predicted. So there there can be a little bit changes up and down. However, we we have been able to adjust the students in the school system 
um, the, the staff, uh, we we plan like we we do a very localized approach, right? Um, I, I don't want to go into the history, right, but, but do, if you even do you coordinate with like the city of Vancouver because they're talking about development and projects, and you know, take a look at what's happening, for instance, over there on, at the end of Broad Street Bridge, they're building a whole new development. Sanaka's coming in there. Is the school board planning for that ten thousand new residents and the children that will come there? Certainly, our staff um, works with the city of Vancouver very closely, and the organizations and Squamish Nation. We we meet, uh, our staff meet with the Squamish Nation about what the potential student population will be, and we build that into our planning process. And we look at future development. We we actually put some land aside for future development that will be coming and work closely with the city of Vancouver in planning that. Right, but you're not, are you planning for it at Henry Hudson, which is the closest school there? Because according to your projection numbers, that school is not going to see a huge increase in enrollment. As I, I, as I mentioned before, that there are certain areas with the growth and certain areas we see low enrollment. And with our stats, we do see low enrollment in that area. Increasing a population doesn't mean it's going to have um, more children in those schools. And if, if there is changes that comes and if there is a pattern that's changing, we are monitoring that very closely um, because it's a year-to-year um, like data that we use, right? And we can adjust those students in our um, schools very easily. I think the concern that a lot of people have here, though, is that you're, you're talking about low enrollment, meaning you move towards surplus land, for instance, what's happening at Graham Bruce Elementary over there in Joyce Collingwood. And people think, well, wait a minute, is that a wise decision? Because if more children do show up, we can't get that land back. In this market, that land is gone. And then what are you going to do? Okay, so the surplus land does not mean that VSB is selling those lands. Uh, We've never said that we are selling those lands. If there is a surplus land that has been declared, that is actually used for um, other services like childcare services or any, any other services that is provided by VSB. Um, we, we do look at all these um, issues and we, we can monitor. Our schools are not at 100% capacity right now and we can adjust any new students that's coming in. We've never had an issue that, like that in the past and we were able to adjust all the students in the school system. So how do you, like, using that Gray and Bruce Elementary then and the soccer field that's going on there, what do you say to parents who are concerned about the soccer field kind of being partitioned off like that? Right now, that's actually in front of the board, and the board is considering about moving uh, with the engagement uh, with the parents, and the decision has not yet been made. So there is a very clear structure and process that, we follow and um, you know um, the board is going to decide that whether what they need to do but it has to be done with the consultation of uh, the, the parents around that area the community around that area right so you feel that the VSB though is on the right track when it comes to your enrollment projections over the next 10 20 30 years even definitely our planning for school has been always accurate and we don't plan for a very long time we we plan for a 10-15 years yeah why Uh, why is that by the way like why not look at it more longer term than just 10 to 15 years because uh things can change um there are so many factors in um adjusting and changing and local data goes into our planning process um so uh, i would say like 10 to 15 years is a better approach because you don't know what's happening in 10 to 15 years we didn't know about 
pandemic like uh, five years ago. And, uh, you know, things have changed during that time. So um, we, we, we follow the 10, 15 years instead of 30 years because we don't know what's going to happen in 30 years from now. We do have a land asset uh, strategy as well. That, that's kind of like a financial document. And we plan to see things, but it, it's quite confidential and uh, it's not being finalized. But we follow that system to see how we can um, see and not jeopardize any future land association. All right. Well, I think parents, you know, obviously they have a lot of concerns about this. So what do you say to those parents? Well, we hear them. Um, they're they're more, more than welcome to come to our public delegation meetings and then we, we can confirm them. We can give them uh, w- what we're planning. Uh, we do have a lot of expertise staff on this, right? They've been working for many, many years. Um, uh, if they're uh, deciding on um, something, we have looked at it, um, these circumstances in the past. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you very much. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, there's a lot going on in Ottawa these days from talk about public inquiries over foreign interference to public safety and, of course, health care. Now, for all of those issues, the party right in the middle of it is the NDP, because after all, government really can't get a lot done without them. So joining us now to talk about their priorities is federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks so much. My pleasure to be here. Now, I know that right now you're you're pressing the pharmacare issue. Why is that a huge priority right now for you? Well, we know that in our country, we've got millions of people that are struggling with the cost of medication. The cost of everything is up. Everything is more expensive. And on top of that, cost of medication is another really big cost for people in their daily lives, whether they take diabetes medication, heart medication, cholesterol medication. It's a big cost. So for people that are choosing between their prescription medication and their groceries, or for just for people who are just feeling that everything costs more, this is a way to provide real relief. It's going to save people a lot of money. And we're the only country in the world that has universal health care that doesn't also include medication coverage. So it just makes sense. It's going to save a lot of money for people, and it's going to keep people healthier. So are, is, are, is the government not doing what you had wanted them to do or what you had negotiated with them? Well, what they've done recently is given us some some concern and that they're not willing to do what we need them to do. In our agreement, we've laid out that the first step of universal pharmacare is this this, uh, legislation, this law that basically sets out the legal framework. Much like our healthcare system is based on the Canada Health Act, the pharmacare, for it to move forward, it needs the pharmacare, the Canada Pharmacare Act. This was recommended by the government's own commission. They, they They had a commission And that commission found that this legislation is one of the key pieces needed. So we want to move ahead with that. But what we're disturbed by is the fact that the body that sets the prices for medication in Canada, the patented medication review board, their their board members have resigned in protest because the Liberal government is blocking their efforts to reduce the cost of medication, which would cost our country nothing. But pharmaceutical lobbyists, these big wealthy companies, have lobbied the government so much that they're delaying and in some cases stopping the steps that would have lowered the cost of medication, so much so that the board members have resigned in protest, which is a big deal. Right. And because of that, we're worried that the Liberal government's too deep into the pockets of the Liberal gov- uh, the, the pharmaceutical industry that they're not going to be able to move forward. So we're ramping up the pressure, and that's why we tabled the bill last week, and we're saying, we've done the homework for you, just take our bill, bring it in as a government bill and pass it. 
I think a lot of people, a lot of Canadians would be surprised because they think, well, wait a minute. I mean, the NDP is really the reason why the Liberals are in power at this point. Uh, is it not frustrating for you? Like, do you not want to exert a little more influence here? Well, what we found is that every step of the way with our agreement, we've got 27 things that we force the government to commit to doing. Even with things that we've got written in agreement, we've had to fight the government to deliver. So last year on the dental care for kids under 12, right near the deadline, which was by the end of the year, the Liberals started saying, oh, we can't do it. We're not sure we can do it. So we had to fight back. We say, no, no, it's in our agreement. You've got to get this done or there will be repercussions. And we got it delivered. This year, they were kind of humming and humming on the, on the idea of dental care for seniors and kids under 18 and people with disabilities. And we had to fight back again and say, no, no, it's in our agreement. You've got to deliver this. We fought hard. We got it in the budget. So this is another example where we're seeing this reticence or kind of this sense that they're, they're kind of dragging their feet. So we've got to fight hard. And we knew that going into this, that it wouldn't just be a walk in the park because we've got it in writing in our agreement. We knew that we'd have to fight this government every step of the way to deliver what we forced them to deliver so Canadians can get some relief. Okay. So with dental care, it's the same thing. With farm care, it's going to be the same thing. Why not exert then the ultimate pressure, you know, where it might hurt and say, fine, let's have that public inquiry on foreign interference, which is something the government's been trying to avoid. I mean, you could make that happen. Well, this is an interesting thing. We, we, we're the party that brought two motions in Parliament to vote on a public inquiry. And we brought a motion in Parliament to have uh, Mr. Johnston step down as special rapporteur. Lots of folks said, well, you know, exert your pressure. We said, we're doing it. We, we forced two votes. Now, fast forward to today, uh, Mr. Johnston has stepped down, as we requested in our motion. And now the government's uh, asking about seeking input on a public inquiry. So our pressure is working. And that's what we're telling Canadians. We deliver. We put pressure on the government. We fight with the government. And we deliver. And sometimes it doesn't happen immediately, but we get it done. And this is an example of us delivering again and again. We are delivered for child uh, dental care for kids under 12. We delivered child care legislation that makes that child care funding permanent. That was a part of our agreement. That was passed last week. We've got Mr. Johnson has now stepped down as a special rapporteur. And the government's announced that they're looking at or open to a public inquiry. These are all things that we've delivered. We're uh, the smallest opposition party in, in Ottawa. We're the fourth party, but we are delivering as if we were in government. So we're proud of that. We're proud that we're using our power and we're getting results. Do you think we will see this public inquiry? Like, do you want to have that happen? Yeah, yeah. So we, we put two motions forward calling for a public inquiry. We're the party leading the way on this, where we believe a public inquiry is important. And we think it's important because for us, uh, we're, we're new Democrats. Democracy is in our name. We actually want to see more people vote. And we're worried that the voter apathy is, is on the rise, so less and less people come out and vote. And while the Conservatives and the Liberals benefit with lower voter turnout, particularly the Conservatives, we actually uh, think it's better for society when more people vote. You could say it's also self-serving in the sense that when more people vote, that then they vote for change. And we want people to vote for change. We want things to be better. We want things to change so that we can improve things. So uh, we, we have a, a, a vested interest in more people voting so we can get changes done. And we are pushing for a public inquiry so we can restore confidence and turn back that, tri- that tide of voter apathy and restore more faith that, yes, your vote matters and it's going to make a difference in your life. How would you describe your working relationship then with, with the government? Like if you call up and say, listen, we're not happy with how this is progressing. Do they listen? Do they take that call? Yeah, I mean, we have, we've got a, a professional relationship, uh, a working relationship but one where we are basically pushing and fighting and forcing our government to do things that they don't want to do. So 
it's a it's a working relationship. It works, but it is not one without friction. It requires a lot of us fighting and forcing and pushing and making things happen. Uh, but we're fighters. I'm a fighter. That's what I've done my whole life. I know how to do it. And so we're prepared for it. We knew that going in. We were not in any way surprised. We knew that the Liberals often say one thing and do another. So even if we have it in writing, we're, we knew we were going to have to continue to put the pressure to get things done. And that's what we're doing. We're putting pressure and we're getting results. Okay. So then what are the next steps when it comes to getting this PharmaCare coverage? Where, where does this go now? So we've got that bill that we tabled last week. Uh, over the summer, we're going to put pressure on the government to say, this bill in our agreement needs to be tabled and passed by the end of the year. We've already done the homework. So just take our bill, table it in the fall, and let's get it passed. So now the work is going to be to ramp up pressure. There's lots of community groups and lots of health organizations that believe health advocates, that believe in universal pharmacare. They know it would be the right thing to do. So they're going to ramp up their pressure as well. Lots of labor groups, uh, workers that believe that this is going to help save them lots of money as well. So they're going to ramp up the pressure. And so we're going to keep on fighting hard over the summer. And then uh, in the fall, we're going to continue to put pressure on them to pass that bill. Well, listen, thanks very much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. 